Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as usual, from his home in Vancouver, is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Hi, Mike. Hi, everybody. I'm feeling sad and somber this morning because our good friend, Kate Walinga, podcaster who did Ignorance Was Bliss, a show that I was on a number of times, and who we met in person more than once in Seattle, she's passed away. So our thoughts are with Willem and her children and the rest of her family. Uh, this is, it's just a terrible thing. Yes, Kate was, uh, Kate was a wonderful person. So condolences from the Dark Poutine family to yours. We'll miss you, Kate. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Joseph Lepage, a French-Canadian rapist, murderer, and necrophile known as the French Monster, was tried and hung in 1878 for the brutal, sexually motivated murder of Josie A. Langmaid, 17, in Pembroke, New Hampshire, in 1875. Lepage was also the sole suspect in the 1874 murder of Marietta N. Ball, a girl from St. Albans, Vermont. He was arrested for that crime, however insufficient evidence prevented a trial, but the night before his execution, Lepage confessed to Marietta's murder as well. Only weeks after Lepage was hanged, two more murders perpetrated in 1867, that of Mrs. George Fountie and her 16-year-old daughter Minnie from St. Alexandre, Quebec, were also tied to Lepage. It's believed that Joseph, with a long history of violent behavior, is one of Canada's earliest misogynist serial killers predating even Jack the Ripper. This is Dark Poutine, episode 305, The Crimes of Joseph Lepage, the French Monster. 
As this is a historical case almost 150 years old, reporting is sparse, and the details of the lives of the victims, in one case even the name of one murdered woman, Mrs. George Fountie, is lost to history. In retelling this story, we have had to rely heavily on newspaper reports, a brief book written after Lepage's trial and execution, and a few meticulously researched local history blogs. The significance of this killer's story, particularly for his brutality and the impact of his crimes on society in Victorian-era North America, makes this story stand out. Near the bottom of the title page of the book The Trial of Joseph Lepage, the French monster published in 1878 by Old Franklin Publishing House in Philadelphia, in bold lettering is the simple phrase, Lepage must have been a fiend incarnate. The text of the book begins dramatically as well. Quote, now and then we are shocked and awed by the presence in the flesh of demons from the bottomless pit. A strong expression this, but most certainly true. Such hellish creatures make their advent from time to time upon this earth, and it is to be regretted that we cannot by some means discover them a few minutes after their arrival and return them promptly to where they belong. Such a creature appears to have been Lepage." End quote. In 1838, Joseph Paget, he later went by Lepage, was born into a farming family in what is now known as the Laurentides region of Quebec, but at the time, it was an unnamed settlement. His parents were hard-working French immigrants. In the 1830s, the Laurentides region of Quebec, also known as the Laurentians, was largely undeveloped and characterized by its vast, untouched wilderness. This area was known for its dense forests, numerous lakes, and the Laurentian Mountains, part of the Canadian Shield. The region's natural beauty, rugged terrain, and abundant waterways made it a picturesque but challenging environment for early settlers and indigenous communities. During this period, the Laurentides were primarily inhabited by the Algonquin-speaking indigenous peoples living there for thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. European settlement in the early 19th century was sparse and mainly consisted of fur traders, missionaries, and lumberjacks who ventured into the area to exploit its natural resources, particularly fur and timber. The region's economy relied heavily on these industries, with fur trading being a significant part of early economic interactions between indigenous peoples and the European settlers. The construction of roads and infrastructure was minimal, making travel and communication difficult. Settlements were isolated, and the harsh climate and rugged terrain posed significant challenges to agriculture and other forms of development. However, the area's natural resources were a draw to those looking to capitalize on the economic opportunities they presented. As the 19th century progressed, the Laurentides began to see more development, especially with the growth of the timber industry and the arrival of more settlers attracted by the promise of land and resources. The region's natural beauty also started to attract tourists toward the end of the century, laying the groundwork for the Laurentides to become a popular recreational and tourist destination in Quebec. Overall, the Laurentides region in the 1830s was a remote, sparsely populated area marked by its natural beauty and the beginning of economic activities that would shape its future development. Today, this region is known for its vast forests, rivers, and mountain ranges, it is a popular destination for outdoor activities such as skiing, hiking, and camping, with numerous parks and recreational areas. One notable town that would be near where it's believed that Lepage was born is Saint-Sauveur, 
or the surrounding areas, which are well known for their ski resorts and quaint village atmospheres. Yeah, uh, it is a beautiful area. I want to go there, rent a chalet, and sit on a deck chair all summer, Mike. Me too. That sounds nice. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? It really would. So growing up, Joseph gained a reputation as a ne'er-do-well miscreant. He was unable to read or write. He spoke French almost exclusively, only learning a few English words. He married a woman three years older than him when he was 20, and five years after their wedding, Joseph and his growing family moved to St. Beatrix, Quebec. He and his wife eventually had five children. Being a family man did not suit Joseph. He drank often and heavily, and was known to terrorize his wife and kids, brutally beating them. A run-in with his 22-year-old sister-in-law, Julienne Ruse, in the summer of 1871, gave strong indications of Joseph's paraphilic proclivities. Julienne lived in St. Beatrice then, close to her sister and brother-in-law. As the sun rose, one morning in June 1871, Julienne headed to a pasture about 450 meters from her house to milk the cows. The cows were missing. She noticed a man in the pasture, wearing a mask that appeared to be made from buffalo skin, a red flannel shirt, linen pants secured with a leather belt, and he was carrying a pine root about two and a half feet long and as thick as Julien's arm. He was initially 15 meters, 50 feet away from her, in a spot where he would be unseen by anybody else. Seeing the man in the mask frightened Julien, of course, and she attempted to run away, but the masked man chased her, stick raised menacingly above his head. Despite her efforts to escape and her cries for help, the man caught up to her after she'd run only a short distance. In the ensuing struggle, Julien scratched and fought her attacker, eventually removing his mask and recognizing him as her brother-in-law Joseph. Joseph then discarded his stick and tried to strangle Julien. He rubbed sand into her eyes and mouth, leaving her incapacitated, and then sexually assaulted her. Julianne lost consciousness during the attack and could not recall how or when Joseph left. She regained her senses some time later and returned home by 9 o'clock that morning. Isn't it just a terrible scene? I mean, obviously horrible what happened to her, but you picture this pastoral setting and she's going to milk a cow, and then this guy... In a buffalo skin mask attacks her, it feels like it's just so unlikely in this setting, you know? Um, and these historical episodes always make me realize that there's always been freaks. Yep. You know, it, it, we think of this as so as contemporary, but there are always, there are always these freaks out there. Yeah, definitely. So the aftermath of the assault left Julianne physically and emotionally scarred requiring a month to recover from her injuries with visible black marks on her throat from being manually strangled. For weeks, she struggled with swallowing as food and drink would not stay down. According to Lee Meller in his book, Cold North Killers, Julianne reported the attack and Joseph was tracked down and arrested by a local policeman. But he managed to escape by overpowering his captor, fleeing across the border into Vermont, where he began calling himself Lepage, and there he worked as a woodcutter a profession he'd become familiar with in his younger years. He settled in the quiet border town of St. Albans in 1871, where his wife and children then joined him. However, his thirst for violence only intensified, and he returned to his old ways, committing a series of heinous crimes, and snuck back across the border to St. Beatrice. 
1872, he set fire to some buildings belonging to a man who had helped capture him after Julianne's rape, and he also injured a young woman in a blitz bludgeoning attack. Another young woman in a blitz bludgeoning attack. Additionally, he attempted to lure a 14-year-old girl into the woods. After terrifying the township for some time, Lepage returned to St. Albans, where he continued to wreak havoc there. As I'm not familiar with the region's history, as I researched, I wondered, why would illiterate and French-speaking Joseph Lepage travel to New England? I discovered that throughout the 19th century, New England experienced a substantial influx of French-Canadian settlers, a migration propelled by economic adversity and agricultural difficulties within Quebec. Challenges such as limited arable land, the repercussions of inheritance laws leading to fragmented farms, and the industrialization of agriculture forced many French Canadians to look southward for better livelihoods. The burgeoning industries of New England, powered by the Industrial Revolution, offered promising employment opportunities in textile mills, shoe factories, and other manufacturing sectors. Cities like Lowell, Massachusetts, Manchester, New Hampshire, and Woonsocket, Rhode Island became focal points for French-Canadian immigrants who established close-knit communities there. These settlers brought with them a rich cultural tapestry, steadfastly preserving their language, traditions, and Catholic faith amidst an industrial backdrop that was often unwelcoming. They faced discrimination and navigated the trials of low-paying, labor-intensive factory jobs, yet they played a pivotal role in fueling the economic engine of New England's industrial expansion. Beyond their economic contributions, French Canadians enriched the cultural landscape of New England. They celebrated their heritage through festivals, introduced their traditional cuisine, and founded French-speaking parishes and schools, ensuring their cultural and religious practices continued. The legacy of French-Canadian migration is deeply embedded in the social fabric of New England, marking a period of significant cultural amalgamation and economic transformation. This movement not only underscored the interdependence of cultural identity and economic migration, but also highlighted the resilience of French-Canadian settlers in maintaining their distinct heritage while adapting to and shaping their new homeland. Their enduring influence is testament to the complex dynamics of immigration and settlement in the 19th century, reflecting the broader themes of struggle, adaptation, and community building in American history. Borders are fascinating. Like we, we just make them up, Mike. <laughs> I think we, we make we make up these invisible lines, right? And and you know, they're probably you know, they're important for practical purposes like, you know, governance, administration and and all of that. But I think this goes to show that they they aren't absolute divisions, right? And and cultures and regions are way more complex and sort of and more dynamic than just lines drawn on a map. This conversation about borders is really prominent in the news right now. There's a lot of people who are having discussions about borders and and people's rights and privileges around these particular pieces of land. Yeah. We're watching people who are supposed to be educated saying things that are really scary and reminiscent of the 1930s, to be honest. But there really is room for everybody, you know, and people do learn to live together. And hopefully that will be the case moving forward with a lot of what we're seeing. But yeah, for want of a better phrase, things bleed over from one region to another. 
People living in border regions often share more common with their neighbors across the border than distant people in their own country. Like, for example, like having lived in, in British Columbia and in Ontario, I feel sometimes that here in BC, we're, we kind of have more in common with people in like Washington State or Northern California than we do with people in Ontario or even Alberta, which is right next door to us, right? Like, for example, Alberta has more in common with Montana than we have. Yeah, Montana and 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 the uh, the Dakotas, right? Yeah. So let's move on to the murder of Marietta Ball near Joseph's new chosen hometown. In the mid nineteenth century, George Ball, a widower in his fifties with a background as a butcher and produce dealer in St. Albans, grappled with declining health by eighteen seventy one. His life had taken on a quiet rhythm with his sons having moved to California for better prospects and his daughter, Marietta, staying close to home, mastering the dressmaker's trade. This semblance of tranquility was shattered when Marietta, then 17, narrowly escaped an attempted assault. One evening, after lingering too long in the village on an errand, she was pursued by an unidentified man as she made her way home in the dark. Her escape was testament to her resilience. She arrived home in a state of exhaustion but safe. The lack of subsequent investigation into this terrifying incident left her family in a state of heightened anxiety, though Marietta herself remained boldly unshaken, continuing to navigate the town alone even after dusk. Marietta's life took a new direction a few years later, in the spring of 1874, when she accepted a position as a schoolmistress at St. Albans No. 2 Schoolhouse about one and a half miles from the village on East Hill. The area was a mix of Aldous Brainerd's lumber mill workers, including numerous French-Canadian families and local farmers. Joseph Lepage's family was among them. Marietta's presence there, youthful energy, and commitment to education made her a beloved figure among her pupils. However, not all interactions were positive. A disciplinary incident with a child from the Rivor family of French-Canadian descent hinted at underlying tensions between Marietta and some of the community members on the hill. Despite these challenges, Marietta chose not to dwell among the East Hill community on weekends, preferring the company of her friend Mrs. Clara Page, whose home offered a respite from the strains of her weekday responsibilities. The serenity of this routine was broken on July 24, 1874, when Marietta disappeared while en route to the Page farm for her usual weekend visit. Her failure to arrive prompted concern and eventually led to the formation of a search party. Shortly after beginning their search, the group quickly discovered a potential ambush site in a hollow marked by the eerie find of a makeshift mask crafted from torn carpeting. At around 1 a.m., Frank Harris and a member of the search party alerted the others to the discovery of a body. Illuminated by the flickering lights of their lanterns, they stumbled upon the tragic scene of Marietta Ball's remains. Uh, there's a mask again. Like, Why is he wearing a mask if he's planning on killing them? To scare them before he does it, or what? Well, maybe, or one would assume to hide his identity. But we'll hear from the killer himself later on about this specific detail. Okay. At the scene, investigators were met with a chilling tableau. The victim, Marietta Ball, lay eyes shrouded by her own skirt pulled up over her head. A heavy stone, the instrument of her demise, sat nearby. Her body, battered beyond recognition, spoke of a furious attack. Even in death, she wasn't granted peace. 
It appeared she'd been sexually assaulted after death, and her limbs were meticulously rearranged in a macabre attempt to mask the brutality. Finally, muddied footprints made by moccasins marked the killer's path. The covering of Marietta's body with her overskirt was seen as another awkward attempt by her assailant to conceal his brutal actions, indicating feelings of guilt as her eyes and face had been obscured. The removal of the skirt uncovered severe injuries, indicating she'd been beaten to death and most likely sexually assaulted afterward. The theory that she'd been sexually assaulted was confirmed by a subsequent examination, conducted in the light of day by Dr. Fassett from St. Albans and Dr. Janeway, a visiting physician from New York, the autopsy revealed the true extent of the violence she had suffered. The discovery of the ambush site, the mask, and how Marietta's body seemed meticulously arranged as though for burial shocked and grieved the community. The brutality of her murder, coming in the wake of another violent crime that same week, enveloped St. Albans with a pall of fear and speculation. The investigation that followed was extensive, involving numerous suspects, including Frank Harris, an African-American man who found Marietta's body but was later cleared due to a solid alibi. Suspicion also briefly turned towards George Gregory Smith, a local attorney, due to unfounded rumors and a past incident where an unknown man chased Marietta. Smith was subjected to a public hearing, which ultimately exonerated him, highlighting the community's desperation for answers and the pervasive influence of rumor and speculation in the absence of concrete evidence. The French-Canadian workers from the mill were among the individuals interviewed by Justice Farnsworth. During these interviews, locals said that Joseph Lepage was seen to have facial scratches and had asked about the departure times of trains shortly after the murder. Lepage explained that the scratches resulted from an incident while picking berries and his alibi for the time of the murder was corroborated by another French-Canadian man. Consequently, all the workers were exonerated and released. Lepage, though, was the strongest suspect in Marietta's murder, but the evidence against him was sparse at the time. Very shortly after his interrogation for Marietta Ball's murder, Joseph Lepage and his family again pulled up stakes and made their way to Suncook in Pembroke, New Hampshire. Joseph's darkness followed. Marietta Ball's as-yet-unsolved murder left an indelible mark on St. Albans, leading to the erection of a monument in her memory, a somber reminder of the tragedy that befell her and the mystery that remained unsolved. This monument, inscribed with the details of her death, stands as testimony not only to Marietta's untimely demise, but also to the collective sorrow and unresolved grief of a community haunted by a heinous crime. The case, with its web of fear, speculation, and racial prejudice, reflects the complexities of justice and the enduring impact of violence on small-town North America. Marietta was buried in St. Albans Greenwood Cemetery. Marietta's family, perhaps trying to put some distance between themselves and the horrible events of Marietta's death, later moved to California. The story will continue after a quick break. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods, explorers discovering nothing but destitution. 
true crime calamity, oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. So pack a lunch. Subscribe to Marooned wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? Doesn't this feel like a, a, a modern crime pattern versus something we, we imagined that long ago? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It feels like something that we would read in a true crime novel today, but I guess since time immemorial, people have been doing this. Yeah, yeah. And this is a decade before Jack the Ripper did his thing. Yeah, I, it's... um. The French monster, it's what he's been, been called from the beginning, and you used it in the title, and I and, um, assume, because like you do this to me all the time, he puts stuff in <laughs> to provoke me to have the discussion about these things. You are correct. <laughs> Headlines like the French monster, you know, those things are always problematic when, when you have sort of a racist or ethnocentric point of view. Well, he was French and he was a monster, but... LePage's Frenchness had nothing to do with who he was, right? But the moniker is used as if to say, oh, those French, they can't be trusted, you know what I mean? And it, and it drives me to distraction. And, and I think I'm particularly like sensitive to it because the gays have always had to deal with this, this crap, right? Like, especially lesbians. The number of times, you know, the whole... Mike, you, you've seen this, the, the whole lesbian killer trope right uh-huh like there was a case uh with uh, Ni- nicola Pedicum in toronto where she was charged with uh murdering her boyfriend because she wanted to be with somebody else a woman mm-hmm. and the headlines in so many canadian newspapers back in 2013 and we're talking mainstream headline like papers like the toronto star right, right? screamed lesbian axe murderer mm-hmm. right and you know this is 2013 and the editors should know better by then and i'm calling i'm shaming them right now publicly it's just as bad as saying somebody is a black serial killer like what difference does it make yeah and and have you ever noticed how if a gay person kills their partner the headlines use the word lover uh-huh killed his gay lover or killed her lesbian lover right it's to make it salacious when it's a straight couple it's he's killed his girlfriend or longtime partner couple years ago there's the whole quote mexican rapist theme that was going in the headlines you know it just shows me that nothing's really changed and when you read these headlines you really got to ask yourself if you're willing to fall for that propaganda if you're going to think for yourself Suncook, New Hampshire, where Joseph Lepage next lived is a village divided between Pembroke and Allenstown in Merrimack County known for its rich history rooted in the Industrial Revolution. Established in the 19th century as a mill town, Suncook thrived due to its location along the Suncook River, which powered local mills attracting workers and fostering a bustling community centered around textile manufacturing. Over the years, Suncook evolved from its industrial origins to become a residential area with a distinct identity, reflecting a blend of its historical milltown character and modern growth. Despite the decline of the mills, the village retains a strong sense of community and historical significance, embodying the transition from industrial to post-industrial life in New England. Josephine Ann Josie Langmaid was born on the 7th of November, 1857, in Chichester, New Hampshire. 
So my mother-in-law lives just near the original Chichester in the UK. Okay. Mike, have you ever wondered why so many places have the word Chester in their name? In the county I grew up, there's a place just called Chester, Nova Scotia. Chichester, Manchester, Winchester. It was when the Romans were in the UK. Uh-huh. It's a Latin word that means encampment. Oh. Yeah. I thought that was kind of fascinating. <laughs> so then it would follow that Chester, Nova Scotia is encampment. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure that's disappointing to some. Josie was the eldest of James Langmaid's five children. Her father was well-known and one of the wealthiest individuals in Pembroke. Josie was well-loved and respected in her, in her community. Josie was well-loved and respected in, in her Josie was well-loved and respected in her community, noted for her youth, beauty, involvement in her church's Sunday school, and as an excellent student. The principal of Pembroke Academy, where she was enrolled, later praised her for her intellectual gifts and admirable character traits. Josie was the eldest of James Langmaid's five children, and her father was among the wealthiest individuals in Pembroke. Josie was well-loved and respected in her community, noted for her youth, beauty, involvement in her church's Sunday school, and an excellent student. The principal of Pembroke Academy, where she was enrolled, later praised her for her intellectual gifts and admirable character traits. In the 1870s, Pembroke Academy, established in 1818, served as an esteemed secondary school offering a classical education aligned with the era's standards, including subjects like Latin, Greek, and mathematics. So Josie probably knew what Chester meant. As part of the nationwide expansion of public education during the post-Civil War period, the Academy played a crucial role in the local community by providing comprehensive education to prepare students for higher education and professional careers, reflecting the period's emphasis on academic excellence and moral development. The Langmaid residence was approximately one and a half miles, around two and a half kilometers, from the Academy a journey Josie often made on foot through the woods and swamps, usually meeting her friend Lilla Fowler near the woods on the Academy Road so they could walk together. However, on October 4th, Lilla waited in vain for Josie, who was unexpectedly late, so Lilla proceeded alone, thinking Josie might have gone ahead. That morning, Josie left her home after her brother Waldo, around 30 minutes later, donning her blue cape and carrying her school book, she was last seen greeting Deacon Guile on the road past the Hoyt farm. When Waldo returned home without seeing Josie at school, their mother expressed surprise and concern over her absence. James Langmaid quickly mobilized the community of Suncook for a search, gathering a group of a hundred by the evening near the woods on Academy Road. As night fell and the searchers lit their lanterns, they discovered signs of a struggle and tracks leading into the woods, marking the beginning of a desperate search for Josie. At 8.45 in the evening, 12 hours after Josie left home to go to school, a man named Daniel Merrill found what was left of the teenager. The scene shook him to his core. She lay 24 meters, around 80 feet, from the Academy Road connecting Pembroke Street to Buck Street in a dense thicket. Her headless body was discovered lying on its back with clothing altered to leave the body exposed, though her clothes had been rearranged over her body by the time it was found. Her genitalia had been removed. A club was found near the road, alongside a damaged earring and a comb. 
A hair accessory and a hat belonging to Josie were also found nearby, and the following day, her head was located 400 meters north, hidden under her cape and beside a pine tree. Her head showed signs of a brutal attack, including a severe blow, lacerated ear, and a gash on the right cheek and neck. Impressions matching the heel and nails of a boot were evident on her face. The communities of Pembroke and Suncook were deeply disturbed and alarmed by the brutal crime that had occurred among them, especially with the perpetrator still uncaught. In response, a detective from Boston was enlisted to support local law enforcement officers, while towns across the East started detaining vagrants under suspicion. John Meyer, apprehended in Lowell, Massachusetts, with bloodstained clothing and facial scratches, had traveled from Suncook by train on the day of Josie's murder. Similar arrests of vagrants were made in Raymond and Pittsfield, New Hampshire. In an act driven by racial prejudice, Charles Moore, Suncook's sole black resident, was also detained without any evidence other than his race. Rinse and repeat. Yep. Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. And not much has changed. No. William Drew, a 24-year-old residing near the Langmaids and known for his dubious character and unsettling behavior towards young women, became a prime suspect for Pembroke police. Forewarned of police pursuit, Drew attempted to flee but was captured en route to Concord, narrowly escaping a violent mob before being incarcerated for his own safety. As the investigators dug deeper, alibis cleared all the initial suspects, including vagrants, Charles Moore, the black man we mentioned, William Drew, and his friend. Soon, however, the focus shifted abruptly, marking a significant turning point in the case. A telegram from St. Albans authorities connected both tragedies, pointing to Joseph Lepage as, as the likely culprit. The crimes were eerily similar. Despite lacking the evidence to convict him in the previous murder, St. Albans officials were confident of his guilt and suspected he had relocated to Suncook, which he had. Lepage's arrest on October 13th sparked outrage in the French community of Pembroke, they felt he was targeted solely due to his ethnicity, echoing the earlier arrest of Charles Moore. Despite another man's alibi placing Joseph with him all day, oddly, Lepage himself contradicted this by confessing to getting lost in the woods that morning. After Joseph's arrest, his wife was quoted in the Daily Alta California newspaper. She knew he was a dangerous man. Quote, in her story to the officers today, his wife stated that he had made attempts to ravish his daughter, 15 years old, since living in Suncook, but was prevented by her interferences. She states that they have all been afraid for their lives. End quote. Mrs. Lepage also noted that she was unaware of her husband's activities on the day of Josie Langmaid's murder. However, she noticed that the shirt he'd been wearing that day had a torn sleeve, and after she washed it and hung it out to dry, it had vanished from the clothesline. So th this is her opportunity to escape from her husband, right? Sure. Um, it would be hard, though. Like, if you, if you live mm. with somebody like that, you know, you'd, you'd really want it to kind of be imperative that he's going to be found guilty. Right. <laughs> um, if, you're, if you're telling all of the horrible things he did, mm -hmm. because you, you wouldn't want him coming back. It's... it's um, I, I wonder if that's all of those things went through her head, you know? Well, they had to have. 
But who knows? I mean, in those days, he was probably the sole provider for the family, and she might have been afraid to lose that. The investigation linked impressions left on Josie's face to the boots of the accused, suggesting a match unique to his footwear. It appeared the victim had tried to defend herself, as indicated by broken bones in her hand. The prosecution aimed to trace the movements of everyone in the vicinity that morning, including several individuals known to frequent the area, to establish Lepage's presence at the crime scene and his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Circumstantial evidence mounted against him, with more witnesses spotting Lepage near the crime scene carrying suspicious tools. By October 28th, a grand jury indicted Lepage for Josie Langmaid's murder, rape, and mutilation, setting the stage for a one-sided trial heavily favoring the prosecution. Julianne Ruse was one of the many witnesses to testify at Joseph's trial. Through an interpreter, she recounted the incident from four and a half years prior where Lepage had assaulted her in a cow pasture using a club, then committed rape while disguised with a homemade mask. This detail was particularly pertinent because a mask of similar description was discovered close to where Marietta Ball's body was found. This evidence, though it was not directly linked to the crime of which Lepage was accused, the murder of Josie Langmaid, would most likely be disallowed today, but it did play a big part in his conviction. Seizing on this, Joseph's lawyer challenged the conviction, arguing that Ruse's testimony was irrelevant to the case. The New Hampshire Supreme Court concurred, leading to the annulment of the initial verdict. Nevertheless, upon retrial, Lepage was once more convicted of first-degree murder, reaffirming his guilt. He was sentenced to hang. Joseph Lepage spent the days leading up to his execution in a condemned cell with dimensions of just 10 by 6 feet and a single small window. He spent most of his time alone and could be heard praying in French. 10 by 6 cell, that'd be $3,500 a month in Vancouver. Oh, dear. And people jump on it because it came, comes with meals, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a condemned cell, so at some point you're going to be hung. I don't know if I like that aspect of it, meals or not. <laughs> a report in the Burlington, Vermont Free Press said that on the evening before his hanging at 6.45 p.m., Joseph was transferred to a sitting room close to the gallows. There he met with local reverends, fathers Barry and Millet. They prayed with him and chatted a few hours. After the priest departed, he was left alone with the warden and one of his deputies. No sooner were they seated when Joseph confessed. According to the newspaper article, Joseph dropped to his knees and said, in his limited English, I kill Gal, yes, I kill two Gal, too bad, too bad. He sobbed while relating the details of his crimes. Regarding Josie Langmate's murder, Joseph said that he'd left Suncook at about 6 o'clock that morning and went to the Baker's at about 7. He then went across the bridge to the corner made by the highways and the railroad, left his axe and coat there and returned across the bridge, taking a stick from a woodpile. He hid and waited for Josie to come by. He'd been watching her as she'd previously caught his eye. Joseph attacked her and struck her with the stick. She threw up her hand to deflect the blow, which is how she received the broken bones in her hand. He then dragged her into the woods, sexually assaulting the girl and then strangling her to death. He then decapitated her with his knife after spending around 15 minutes with her body. He said he had not stomped on her face, but had used his boot to hold her head in place, explaining the footprint. 
Joseph took some of Josie's personal belongings with him. Her wallet and ring were among them. He carried her head to where it was later discovered and hid the valuable items to make it appear she'd been robbed. He then cleaned up in a nearby brook, returning to retrieve his axe and coat for his work, heading back to Suncook as if nothing had happened. He also admitted that in the days after the murder, his wife had burned some of the clothing he'd worn that day, calling him a bad man. He drew a map that led to Josie's buried personal items. Wait, so is he, um, is he trying to say that she tried to hide evidence? Not that we can believe a word that somebody like this says. He could be saying that, or it could be something a little more complex, like yeah. I mentioned she was afraid to lose his income. Yeah, this it would have been a very complex situation for her, right? For sure. I can't imagine being in that position where, you know, this guy is beating you and your kids and possibly molesting the kids as well, um, and, but he's the only person bringing money in. Oh, I... Uh. After Joseph was done telling about Josie, he then detailed his involvement in Marietta Ball's murder. He had chosen her earlier as well. True to his M.O., Joseph waited for Marietta to pass by a place from which he'd be able to surprise her. He wore the mask he'd made to disguise himself as she knew him. During the attack, like that on his sister-in-law, Marietta ripped off his mask, and she recognized him. She screamed and fought, scratching him badly. Joseph sexually assaulted her and strangled her, knowing she'd be able to identify him later. After he was done doing what he wanted with her body, he flung Marietta's corpse over his shoulder and walked almost a quarter mile to where she was later found. His confession brought no mercy from the sentence that awaited him, other than perhaps the unburdening of his soul before heading off to meet his maker. The details of Lepage's execution at Concord, New Hampshire were described in the New York Herald Saturday, March 16, 1878 edition. At 11.09 on March 15, 1878, Joseph Lepage, 39, was executed by hanging at the state prison for his crimes, including the murder, sexual assault, and dismemberment of Josie Langmaid in Pembroke and Marietta Ball in St. Albans, Vermont, although she wasn't really part of the sentence. Approximately 100 spectators were permitted to observe the execution. Sheriff Dodge led the procession to the gallows with Fathers Barry and Millet accompanying, offering prayers for Lepage's soul. Before reaching the scaffold, Lepage was given the last rites and recited the Lord's Prayer in French. During his final moments, he noticed the sunlight through a prison window illuminating his face, while the crowd appeared more affected by the event than he did. Displaying no emotion, Lepage recognized Mr. Langmaid, the father of one of his victims, looking at him with a gaze that seemed more vengeful than remorseful. He also acknowledged the detectives, Dearborn Sergeant and Hildreth, who'd played a role in his capture and conviction. As Lepage stepped onto the scaffold, the crowd fell silent, adhering to Warren D.G. Pillsbury's request for quiet and non-interference even in the event of an execution mishap. Fathers Barry and Millet remained by the gallows, visibly moved as the execution proceeded. An execution mishap. Yeah. Ugh. I don't even want to know what that means. <laughs> well, it could mean a number of things. Ugh, horrible. For example, the placement of the noose is very important. So the neck breaks when the person goes through the trap door. They could also hit their head or something on the trap door and 
become caught on something, it's it's really horrible. It's not not a very pleasant thing to think about. Or there's also the chance that Oh, don't say it. The person's head might pop off. So there's that. Sheriff Dodge displayed considerable nervousness while announcing the warrant for the execution. The deputies also appeared visibly shaken, starkly contrasting the calm and composed attitude of the man facing execution. The deputies secured the condemned's hands and feet. Meanwhile, Sheriff Dodge was busy setting the noose and placing the black hood over the man's face, shielding it from the crowd's view. Throughout this process, Lepage remained calm and had an undisturbed demeanor. After finishing the reading of the warrant, Sheriff Dodge commented in a noticeably strained voice, quote, And now, Joseph Lepage, in accordance with the command, I proceed to execute the sentence of death by hanging you by the neck until you are dead, and may God have mercy on your soul, end quote. Sheriff Dodge activated the mechanism, stepping on a trigger, causing the trapdoor to open beneath the feet of the brutal man responsible for the deaths of Josie Langmaid and Marietta Ball, executing him, as per judicial decree, to the relief of the outraged community. Falling approximately six feet, the man met his end without displaying any physical struggle or distress. Although death was not immediate, it was determined that he did not experience any pain during the process. Nineteen minutes later, doctors Crosby, Barney, and Gage confirmed that life had ceased. However, Sheriff Dodge recommended allowing the body to remain suspended slightly longer to ensure death, leading to the decision not to lower Lepage's body until 30 minutes had passed. Lepage's body was taken by friends of his family and at his wife's request was buried in the cemetery at St. Jean-Baptiste Catholic Church in Suncook, New Hampshire. Reverend Nazaire N. Hardy, the parish's second pastor, oversaw the proceedings. According to the Boston Globe, on April 9, 1878, less than a month after his hanging, authorities in St. Alexandre, Quebec, had determined Lepage responsible for two more murders. The article says that recent evidence had compellingly suggested that Joseph Lepage was also behind the cold-blooded killings of a mother and daughter in this community about a decade earlier. This revelation came to light following a detailed conversation with George Fountie, the bereaved husband and father of the victims. The tragic events unfolded on October 12, 1867, when Mrs. Fountie and her 16-year-old daughter Minnie did not return home after setting out to conduct some errands and visit a friend earlier in the day. Their failure to come home prompted a frantic search by George Fountie at dawn the next day. The search ended in horror as the mutilated bodies of his wife and daughter were discovered hidden under a brush pile a short distance from their intended path a grim testament to the violence they'd encountered. Initially, suspicion fell upon a man named Horace St. Martin, who was generally regarded by the community as a vagrant and troublemaker. The article calls him a scamp. St. Martin was arrested for the murder, but due to the absence of substantial evidence and a solid alibi proving he was not in the area when the murders took place, he was eventually released. The case took a significant turn as further scrutiny revealed that Joseph Lepage had been observed engaging in a hostile exchange with the Fountie women on the evening they disappeared. Lepage's threatening behavior and his subsequent warning that the women would regret involving the authorities painted a sinister picture of his intentions. 
Lepage was seen following the victims shortly before they vanished, adding weight to the suspicion against him. However, it was not until Lepage confessed to the murders of Josie and Marietta that these connections were fully explored. This newfound scrutiny into Joseph's past actions led George Fountey and subsequently the community to firmly believe that Lepage was indeed responsible for the heinous acts that robbed poor George of his family. Despite his initial reluctance to publicize these findings, in the weeks after Lepage's hanging, Fountey sought to expose the true extent of Lepage's criminality, shedding light on the dangers he posed underscored by the ultimate price Lepage paid for his crimes on the scaffold. This case, long shrouded in mystery and marred by tragic loss, highlights the enduring quest for justice and the need to confront the darkest elements of human nature. A stone monument to Josie, set slightly back from the Academy Road, was erected near the site of a murder. On one side, a poignant inscription reads, Death lies on her like an ultimate frost upon the sweetest flower of all the field. The reverse, ominously, gives directions to her murder site. Body found 90 feet north at Stone Hub. Head found 82 rods north at Stone Hub. Okay, so the front, lovely. The back, TMI. <laughs> like, why do they, why are they inscribing in marble where the head was found? That's insane. I've thought about this a bit, and it's probably because they wanted to honor her in a big way. It's not something that would happen today, but in the sensibilities of that particular era, I could see it. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 305, The Crimes of Joseph Lepage, the French Monster. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Hey, it's Lacey from PEI. I just wanted to call in because, one, you didn't have any voicemails. So I had to leave another one. I've called twice already. I'd leave one after every episode, but I don't want to be the annoying girl from PEI. Two, I wanted to say how much I appreciate you giving that Byron Carr case update, actually playing the news release from Charlottetown City Police. Um, it's It was a weird day on PEI. That's not a case update we get all the time. Um, there is another case going on currently. It's obviously very fresh, so I won't even mention it. But we do have these circumstances on PEI where you don't think that these murders happen. They do. Um, it's such a it doesn't get the news press that a bigger province would have. So I really appreciate you bringing that information and that update to your listeners. I didn't know anything about the Byron Carr murder until I listened to the Dark Poutine episode. So it really not warms my heart, but it makes me feel special that I'm from PEI and you guys are reporting on this or podcasting on it. So thank you so much. If you listen to the whole episode, his family does speak his brother and it was very heartwarming and you can see the bit of relief obviously it's not solved it's not done but it's a stepping stone to the relief they need so thank you so much my last voicemail i left 
Matthew said that I could probably plan a clam bake. So my friend got a really big hoot out of that. Now we're dead set. We're going to plan one for the summer or sometime, and you guys are going to get invited. And then Matthew, come see PEI. Stipulation, Steve might have to come. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate everything you guys do for your listeners and all the information you bring. I'm wearing my toque since we've gotten like 80 centimeters of snow here. We've been snowed in for two days. We finally just got out basically today. Some of the roads are still not passable. So since I'm wearing my toque, go take a shit in your hat. And thank you for everything you guys do. Much love from PEI. Bye. Oh, thank you, Lacey. That's really nice. Lacey will never be the annoying girl from PEI. You're you're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm looking for the to, forward to the clan bake invite. Me too. The the only problem with like going that far is I would never have the heart to get Steve on an airplane because I don't think he'd take it well. So Mike, we'd no. have to drive. We'd have to drive there. Oh man, that's a really really long drive. I've done with it. Steve and the cats. Oh no 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 no! I don't think I'm taking my cats. <laughs> Can you imagine you, me, Steve, and the cats in the car? From here to PEI? Uh, no, I can't imagine that. Or actually, I can. <laughs> it would be horrendous. I want to go to a clam bacon PEI with you. That would be a real load of fun. But I would also like to go to a lobster boil. What about a lobster boil? I love lobster. Matthew, we got to go do a lobster boil. But I've done a lobster boil. I've never done a clam bake. Fair enough. But here's an idea. We could go to PEI and do both. Novel. Novel idea. <laughs> Why not? We're grown-ups. We can do whatever we want, and consequences be damned. I mean, you know, speaking <laughs> of consequences, I'm kind of getting tired of being fat. Does that make you consequential? <laughs> I guess you could call it that, yeah. Hey, did you notice I, I, I got like a trim up of my beard at the barber and my head shaved on? Does it like take 10 years off of me? 10 years is a lot, Matthew. Yeah, I'm just looking at my myself here in our in our little video. I feel I feel like I look younger today. You're looking healthy and bright. Have you been doing some facial tonics as well? No, I my I use my shampoo for my head. Yeah, that I use for my beard. That I use as my face wash. That I use as my body wash. <laughs> oh, I'm not a do anything to my skin sort of person. I'm a soap and water sort of guy. I like a little moisturizer. You know. When you're this age, you have to appreciate the days where you think you look okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Sadly, I know exactly what you mean. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We don't have any new Donut Money donors or patrons to speak of this week, so uh, thank you to all our previous Donut Money donors and patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's all she wrote for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, you know the drill. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody.